John chapter 1. We're going to cover this next kind of chunk, 19 to 28 together. The title of this sermon is A Voice in the Wilderness. Let me read that with you and then we'll get into the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect word this morning. Psalm 119, it says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Lord, this is no human book or human account. This is your word. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. Holy Spirit, you used the man, John, to give us the very words of God. God breathed and powerful, sharper than any sword on earth, more powerful than anything else on earth. It's the sword of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you be the teacher of all things? Would you help us to see uh, what you have given us, what you have spoken through John in your word this morning? And above all, we ask that we would behold the worthy one who is Jesus. You are so worthy, Jesus. The fact that we could be in your presence is incredible. We thank you for who you are and for your word. Would you speak to us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? What do others say about you? We today think and talk and read much about our identity. In the world, questions of gender identity are daily being talked about in the news. Excuse me. Why, God? We speak of racial and ethnic identity. We speak of our national or our political identity. We speak of our professional identity. Even in the church, we are obsessed with books and tests about ourselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. Not many issues hit so close to home as does identity because it is the identity speaks of one's very own essence and being. But let me just tell you this morning, God's primary concern is not your identity. And he does not want your primary concern to be your identity. 1,600 years ago, a pastor named Augustine talked about sin as a greater love for oneself than for God. 500 years ago, another pastor named Martin Luther developed this concept. He said, do you know what the essence of sin is? It's a soul turning in upon itself rather than turning upwards towards God. The essence of sin is when our souls bend in upon themselves. 
let me suggest to you that the chief end of man is not to know and enjoy oneself. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the chief end of your identity is to glorify God and through all of who you are, enjoy him. That is why you have been born, why you breathe to know and glorify God and enjoy him forever. And is it not so that the deepest moments of joy in life are when we are caught up in the beauty of something besides ourselves? Is that not so? When we are playing with a baby, when we are biting into a ribeye steak, when we are watching the sunset reflecting over the ocean and the clouds in the Carpinteria sky, is that not where joy is found when we forget about ourselves and we are beholding something else, something beautiful? And let me suggest, not just suggest, let me testify to you that the greatest joy there is is beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can anyone this morning testify with David when he said to God, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So yes, our identity matters. Our identity in Christ is significant. But woe is us if that is where we stop looking, ourselves. No one has modeled this concept better than John the Baptist. He, uh, and, and really nowhere better in the Bible than these verses before us today. So think about John the Baptist's identity. His identity trumps all of our identity. His identity surpasses almost the identity, identity of every other living person who was ever born. He was the first prophet in 400 years. He was born in a prestigious family of the tribe of Levi. His dad was a temple priest, and his own birth was prophesied by an angel and said, hey, your son is going to be very significant. His own conception was a miracle because his mother was past the age of childbirth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from within his mother's womb. He was anointed with power from on high to speak and proclaim. He was a Nazarite. He never drank alcohol. He never cut his hair. He lived in the wilderness. Like it, there, there was never someone so interesting as John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus says of people, of, of those born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. If anyone had the right to say, let me tell you a little something about myself, it was John the Baptist. Now, in our text this morning, uh, if you notice in your Bible, the next three headings, the next three chunks of scripture are uh, three stories about John the Baptist, and they're three days in a row. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, were trying to give us like thorough history. And so that's where we get the backstory of John and we get a bigger picture of John the Baptist ministry. But remember the gospel of John, he knows these other books have been written and his primary concern is not to tell us history or facts, but to tell us theology about Jesus. And so what he does is he picks up uh, at the climax of the ministry of John the Baptist. That's verse 19. He starts at the climax of John the Baptist's ministry three days in a row. And this day is when he's getting questioned by a bunch of a delegation of the Jews sent to him from Jerusalem. The next day, he sees and beholds Jesus and he tells everyone, behold the Lamb of God. And the third day, he tells his own disciples, you need to follow him. Three days in a row, that's what fills up the first chapter of John. And this morning, one question hangs over these verses. Who are you? Who are you? Look at uh, the end of verse 19. Who are you? And then again, they ask him, are you this person? Are you this person? Are you this person? Verse 22, who are you? 
We need to give an answer. What do you say about yourself? The question, who are you, hangs over this passage. The question of identity hangs over this passage. Who is John? What is his identity? And John makes five identity statements in these verses. He makes five statements of his identity. And as we study how John speaks of himself, we can learn from this man how we should speak of ourselves. We can learn truths of our identity. And so let's begin. Uh, Let's read again verses 19 to 20, and we'll, we'll find the first identity statement. It says this, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, quick uh, backstory, background. When it says the Jews in the Gospel of John, it actually says the Jews 70 times. It's John's choice um, phrase, not for all the Jewish people. He was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. John was a Jew. He's speaking of the enemies of Jesus. When he uses the phrase the Jews in this Gospel, he's referring to those who are opposed to Jesus. Uh, in fact, John has been accused of anti-Semitism because he's, he, pretty, he casts these Jews in a negative light a lot of times. Now, of course, he is a Jew himself. Jesus was a Jew. He is not anti-Semitic. He is simply speaking of the enemies of Jesus. And, and so they come, this group of Jews from Jerusalem, ask John, this prophet, who are you? And, and then we get this like weird sentence in chapter, or verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And that's our English translator's best attempt at communicating what is a little clearer in the Greek. It's like an emphatic, absolutely, without a question statement, I am not the Christ. And that's the first identity statement we read of John in this passage, I am not the Christ. The first thing John says of himself is, I am not the Christ. Now, the very fact he had to say that tells you something about what people thought about him. If, if you uh, were meeting someone in the greeting time this morning, you're like, oh, how's it going? Nice to meet you. What's your name? And you say, hey, I'm not Jesus. You would be like, yeah, no kidding. You're not Jesus. The fact that, that John had to say this shows us something of his reputation, of how other people esteemed him. He is resisting the real temptation. Think about this. The real temptation of receiving for himself the praises of men. And rather than glorify himself, he diverts attention away from himself and onto the true Messiah, the Christ. Uh, one of the themes in the book of John is these seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. If you remember, the I am is how God identifies himself to Moses. Jesus is identifying himself throughout this gospel with Yahweh. And John, the author, is helping us see the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. But here, in this passage, This is the first of four I am not statements that John the Baptist makes. He has five identity statements, and four of them are I am not, I am not, I am not, I am not. And this is the most significant one. I am not the Christ. I am not Jesus. And let me suggest to you, you cannot know yourself until you first know who you are not. (laughs) Let me break it to you. You're not the Christ. You are not the Messiah. You are not why the universe exists. You are not the savior of the world. You are not the answer to your own problems. You are not the Christ. Only Jesus is the Messiah. Only Jesus is the Christ. And you know what? John knew He couldn't fulfill his role, his purpose, his mission in life to be a witness to Jesus 
if he let attention remain on himself. We're going to learn more of what his role is. It's essentially to be a witness, a testimony towards Jesus. He was sent by God to tell others Jesus is coming. And he knew that if he just enjoyed, even for a day, even for a moment, some of the glory that belonged to Jesus, the more he received the praises of men, the less effective he would be to to be a witness for Jesus. The more we recognize that we are not the Messiah, the more effective we will be to testify to the Messiah. I am not the treasure. I am a vessel. I am a clay pot, as we learned a few weeks ago. A disposable, yet important tool to carry the news of Jesus. A Ziploc bag, if you will. Uh, A few weeks ago, a brother came up and shared with me this parable. And this is like he told me, and I kind of remember it, so let me share it with you. And it was a story of these two clay pots, and uh, they, you know, it was kind of one of those, like, the pots are the, like, the, the being or whatever. And so there are these pots are, like, traveling along a road, and they're going to this well to fill up the water, and then they're going back to, to the town to give water. And um, one pot always had one side of the road, and the other pot had another side of the road. And one pot was, like, pristine and beautiful, and it didn't have any cracks. And then the other pot was all cracked, and it kind of leaked, and it was really insecure about itself, and it always looked at this nice pot. And so, you know, they would walk down, and they would fill themselves up, and on the way back, they would come back, and uh, this, this, this cracked pot one day was saying to its maker, you know, I'm just, I wish I was better. I wish I didn't have so much brokenness and cracks. And then the, the master says, hey, I want you to look at your path. Look at your side of the path. You see all those flowers? You see all that growth? That is because you are broken, and you are broken on purpose to fulfill the role I have for you. Church, we are broken clay pots on purpose because our job is to share with others Jesus, not ourselves. Um, if, if you want, this is such a significant uh, idea and passage. If you can, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This, this chunk of scripture is um, one of the ways Paul describes our job as Christians to share the gospel with the world. It's an identity passage, if you will. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna read 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. This is this this passage describes John the Baptist, it describes the disciples, it describes Paul, it describes every Christian since. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. I think we also have it on the screen says this, but we have this treasure, that's Jesus, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase to thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here it is. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Can anyone testify to that? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, we are transient clay pots in this life. We are broken and we will continue to disintegrate so that the glory would be given to God and not 
to us. We must never think God is hindered by our brokenness, that we're not useful because we're not all put together. We are not the Messiah. That's not our job. We are imperfect vessels to testify there is a Messiah, and he is not me. And what freedom is there when we know we are not the Messiah? I can't save anybody. I can't save, I can't change any hearts. I can't, listen, Jesus is seated on his throne. He is sustaining the whole universe. He will build his church. He will save people. He will make things new. We are simply to bear witness to him. We are not the Christ. That is the first identity statement John makes in this passage. Now let's look at verse 21. He makes another one uh, here. So, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now, uh, quick background here. Why would they think he's Elijah? Uh, in Malachi chapter four, there was a prophecy. This is, if you were to turn here, it's like the last book in the New Testament and it's the second to last verse in the Old Testament. It's like one of the very last verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible at that time. This was the last known prophecy that the Jews had. They were waiting for this passage in Malachi 4. Do we have that wrong? Yep. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end of the Old Testament, the last prophecy in Malachi. And so the, the Jews are saying, okay, so you're not the Messiah. Are you Elijah to come? Now, the Jews, remember, how did Elijah leave this earth? Did he die? No, he was taken up in a chariot. And so they believed that maybe he would return that way in a chariot. That because he didn't die, maybe Elijah would come back and he would literally be walking on the planet as a prophet. They developed the idea that literally Elijah would be here. Now, think about this. They didn't know what Elijah looked like. And John the Baptist could literally be Elijah. He, he certainly uh, had similarities in his behaviors. He was a fiery dude out in the wilderness. And they thought, maybe this is Elijah. And so they say, are you Elijah? And what, is, what does John say to them? Second identity statement, I'm not Elijah. I am not Elijah. Now, if you're familiar with uh, other places in the New Testament, Jesus says he's Elijah. So like, is John lying here? What's going on? And what, what um, commentators are pretty sure of is, and this makes sense, is John is saying, I'm not literally Elijah. And that's what they're asking. But if, uh, if you look in Matthew chapter 11, or actually, let's just go to Luke 1 verse 17, Ronald. Luke 1 17. This is a prophecy about John the Baptist. And this is what it says. He will go before him in what? The spirit and power of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children. And so what John is doing here is he's, he could, in a sense, take credit. Yeah, I'm kind of Elijah. I'm here. I'm the prophet coming to spirit and power. But he continues to divert attention away. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. I am not literally Elijah. And now I want us real quick before we move on to, to take something away from this. John is again displaying humility when it came to his identity. He, he could have gone on here to be like, do you want to hear the prophecy my dad got about me? Do you want to hear how I was conceived, like supernatural? Do you know how old my mom is? He could have gone on and pointed to his unique identity, but he just simply says, I'm not Elijah. And then this continues, the rest of verse 21 they, they, or verse 22, now verse 21, he said, I am not. They say, are you the prophet? And he answers, no. It's our third identity statement. I'm not the prophet. Now, who is this prophet? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there is another prophecy that Moses made. And he said, there's going to come another prophet one day. Uh, I think we have that up here for you. This is in Deuteronomy 18, this is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right when they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the Jews were waiting for three people. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for Elijah to come back, and they were waiting for this prophet. These are the three people the Jews are waiting for. They're hoping for, and they're, they're wondering, maybe John is one of them. Maybe he's the Messiah. Nope, he's not the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. Nope, he's not Elijah. And they say, are you the prophet? And he ends just simply with a, no, I'm not the prophet. That's not who I am, which is another act of humility because Jesus elsewhere says, yeah, do you know what? He is a prophet. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 9, look what Jesus says of John the Baptist. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus is saying John the Baptist was an amazing man. He was a prophet. He did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But here John is simply saying, no, I'm not that prophet. In fact, uh, commentators think that prophet refers to the Messiah. When, when Deuteronomy 18 is talking about another man's going to come and he's going to have the words of God, they think probably it was the Messiah. So Jesus would be the prophet. And so John rightly, again, humbles himself, says, nope, I'm not the prophet. So frustrated, the Jews are like, you're not being helpful here. Like, who are you? Look at verse 22. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? And this is the first time John will respond in a positive sense about who he is. And that's in verse 23. Look what he says. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Who does John say that he is? I'm a voice. I'm a voice. What a, honestly, like a weird thing to say. I'm sure these guys were not satisfied. Oh, thank you, John. You're a voice. Uh, who is John Baptist? Well, he said he's a voice. And what, is, like, what is John saying? Uh, well, two things, I think. Number one, what is Je what's the first description we get of Jesus in the first verse of this gospel? In the beginning was the word. John, the author John, here is, is giving us this amazing play on words. If Jesus is the word, do you know who John is? He's just a voice who speaks about the word. He's just a voice who testifies and speaks about the word. A couple things about this. Uh, words exist before a voice does, right? If, if you're going to speak something Generally, a good idea is to have a word or maybe a sentence in your brain before you speak it. Words come before the voices do. Jesus, the word, is superior to every other voice that speaks of him. And secondly, a voice is the vehicle that a word is made known. Though John is inferior, he's still important. There's no other way to know a word, to hear the word, than someone to speak the word. And then the third thing is this. Words remain after the voice stops speaking. Words remain in minds and in hearts. The effects of words remain. Voices cease. They come and go. But the word remains. Jesus remains. And if you follow Christ, you are a voice through whom God intends to reveal the word to the whole world. You're not the word. You're not the message, but you are the messenger. You have been given a voice. Listen, voices vary right? You got loud voices and quiet voices and high-pitched voices and deep voices. You got voices that sound real good when they sing and voices that don't sound very good when they sing. But the word is the important thing about a voice. What is spoken is what matters. In this church, what we value more 
than any person is the words of God. And listen, many voices are going to share this book, but it's the word that we care about. It's the word we care about. Listen, many voices are going to be singing songs and giving announcements and leading Bible studies, but do you know what matters? The words that are being spoken, which which means this, substance matters more than style. Substance, what you are saying, what is being spoken matters more than style. In our preaching, in our singing, in our conversations, listen, church, we can't be a church that cares more about the style than the word. Can't be a church that cares about voices more than the word who is Christ. And do you know what else that means? Every voice matters because the power isn't in the voice, it's in the word. Every voice in this church matters. Let me tell you something. Voices change, the word doesn't change. The message does not change. In fact, you have been uniquely given a voice and uniquely placed in your life to bring the word in places where everyone else cannot bring the word. Think about how far we can spread the news of Jesus just by the people in this room. Like this room is not where the word stops. This room is where we look at the word and we get courage and fed to go be voices like John to testify to the word, to Jesus. And John had a unique role in history, but we have a unique role in history. The only way that the nations are reached is through people spreading the the word of God, Jesus himself, who is the word. And John, John speaks of his unique role when he says in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What, what he's saying there, he's quoting a prophecy, another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, and I want us to read this prophecy. So the context here is, this is a prophecy when the people of God have been disobedient, and they're going to exile, they're losing the promised land. And then they're going to return, and imagine returning to a land that's been neglected for many years. The roads, there's potholes, it's been raining, like the land will be a disaster. And what this prophecy is saying is, we need to fix this place up because the king's coming back. We need to make this place ready for the king to return to his throne. And so this this is what Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5 is getting at. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. What it's referring to is a road. You got bumps. You got potholes. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To prophecy in Isaiah, John comes, and his role is to be that voice. He's telling people, the king is coming. He's coming back. He's returning. The king of kings is coming. Guys, it's time to get ready for the king of kings. That is his role. In those days, when a king would visit a town, he would send messengers ahead of him. And, and they would announce, like, how, how lame would it be if a king just, like, showed up by surprise, right? The king's like, no, I don't show up like that. I make sure everyone knows I'm coming so I can get a proper reception. I'm the king. And so messengers go, and they're saying, the king is coming. Prepare the way. They would repair. This is a real thing. They would repair the roads so that the king would have a straight way. The king doesn't want to be, like, bumping around in his chariot and, like, veering off. And sorry, king, we got to clear this out of the way. And then veering over here. He's like, no, I want a straight, prepared road. I want to be able to go nice and smooth into my kingdom. And so prepare the roads ahead of me. And this prophecy in Isaiah is picking up that idea that people were familiar with. Okay, when a king comes, they prepare the way for him. And Isaiah is saying, guys, you are a spiritual wilderness. There's no spiritual life in you. You've been disobedient to God. You've been worshiping idols. You've been neglecting the word of God. 
And so you've gone into exile. But let me tell you, the king is going to return. And you got you to gotta spiritually get yourself ready. Those high places of pride in your heart, you got to lower those things. Those low places of sin, you got to fill that in. That clutter, all that stuff in your life that's distracting you from God, you need to clear it away. You need to spiritually prepare yourself to receive Jesus. That's what the prophecy in Isaiah meant. And then John the Baptist is picking it all up and saying, guys, Jesus, the King of Kings, has come. Are you ready? Is your heart prepared? Do you have pride in high places? Do you have sin in these low places? Do you just have the clutter of the world in your heart? Prepare yourself because God is coming. He's coming. This is why John the Baptist preached so much about repentance. Because the, the proper posture to see God is one of repentance and humility. This is why in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, he would say something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. Your hearts are not right. You have sin in your life. You want to see the kingdom? You need to repent. And that's why he spent all this time baptizing people. This baptism was a symbol of cleansing, a symbol of cleansing. And so in verse 24 through 25, after John says, you guys need to get yourself ready, uh, this began to rub the Jews wrong a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, we like prophets, but like, hey, dude, like we're the Jews. Calm yourself down. Who are you telling us to repent? And so look at verse 24 through 26. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They're saying, who are you? Who are you to be baptizing people? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Uh, in that time, in that history, from uh, the 400 years when Scripture had ceased and there wasn't prophecy. The, the Jews had this practice that if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would be baptized. You would go into some body of water and you would be baptized. And it was a sign that you were an unclean Gentile and you needed to be spiritually cleansed and prepared to be brought into the people of God. That was a practice that was, that was going on. But let me tell you this, no Jew ever got baptized. That was for the Gentiles. That was for them, the outsiders, the sinners. They're already God's chosen people. Why would I as a Jew need to get baptized? And who is this guy baptizing Jews? Listen, unless he's the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, like he can't be doing this. He can't be saying that we are a spiritual wilderness. And yet he shows up and he starts calling people to repent. Your hearts aren't right. And he's in the wilderness for a reason. Listen, he was the son of a priest. He could have done his ministry in the temple, but he went to the wilderness as a statement and indictment on the Jews. He's saying, you guys are a spiritual wilderness. He, he says, yeah, you have your temple, your great grand temple, full of money and sacrifices and great crowds are coming and it's amazing. But do you know what you are? You're a spiritual wilderness. He's saying that to the Jewish people. You are a spiritual wilderness. And then the chief indictment is at the end of verse 26. Look what he says. Among you stands one you do not know. He's not just saying you need to repent. He's not just saying you need your sin washed away. He's saying you don't even know the king. You don't even recognize the king is here. He's come and you're not ready. He is standing in your midst and you do not recognize him. That verse, that statement, the king is here and you don't know him, 
that could be written over the entire gospel of John. Story after story after story, the king of kings will heal people and feed people and teach people. And he himself says, you don't even know me. You don't even recognize me. And in fact, but a small handful, these crowds, these thousands of people will declare, crucify him. That statement, you don't even know me, is the story of the ministry of Jesus. And that word know, in verse 26, it's oida or something like that in Greek. It, it means more than just head knowledge. It means you know what to do with that knowledge. You know how to apply knowledge. Throughout the Bible, that word know is used often to convey a relationship, even a sexual relationship. It speaks of intimacy. To know someone speaks of this deep intimacy. Now, these Jews would get to know Jesus. They would see his miracles. They would watch his death on a cross. Some of them would even see him alive after his death on the cross. But they didn't know him. They didn't know him. And church, if it is possible for these people, it's possible for us. You could spend your life in church. And let me tell you, Jesus is here. He's here among us. John chapter 1 says he walks in the midst of the lampstands, which represent his churches. We, the people of God, are the temple of God. When we gather and we open this book and we worship Jesus, he's here. He's standing amongst us by his spirit. And it's possible to fill your brain and your pages with notes, all kinds of knowledge about Jesus and never know him. This is possible. A pastor, an Anglican pastor and bishop on this passage I'm going to read us a bit of a lengthy quote. It has this to say. Christ is still standing among many who neither see nor know nor believe. Christ is passing by in many a congregation, and the vast majority have neither an eye to see him nor an ear to hear him. The spirit of slumber seems poured out upon them. Money and pleasure and the world they know but they know not Christ. The kingdom of God is close to them, but they sleep. Salvation is within their reach, but they sleep. Mercy, grace, peace, heaven, eternal life are so near that they might touch them, and yet they sleep. See, these people assumed they were right with God. They assumed they knew God. They assumed by nature of their heritage and ethnicity, the fact that they did all the right stuff on the outside, they looked like those who know God. They assumed they knew him. They rested on their obedience to external formalities, and spiritual rituals. Listen, many people got baptized and John says, you don't know him. Many people heard the words of God preached, and they didn't know him. They didn't personally know Jesus. Do you know him? Have you met him? Have you repented of your sin and turned to him? Have you cried out for mercy from him? Have you trusted in his blood? Shed on the cross is the only way to be right with God. Do you know him? Church, Jesus is here right now. Do you know him? His hand is stretched out to us in mercy and love. Do you know him? After John... <laughs> tells these people they don't know the king, they don't know their Messiah, he makes one last identity statement in verse 27. Let's look at it. 
even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Do you know how John wraps up this identity lesson? He says, I'm not worthy. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, he's referring to a custom of that day when uh, the common shoe was leather sandals, and they didn't have like nice paved roads and sidewalks, and so they walked around, and by the end of the day, their feet were dirty. And so the job of the lowest slave was to go to their master and untie the sandals and wash their feet. Um, this job was so low that, uh, in that in those days when a, when a student wanted to follow a rabbi, what he would do is he would become that rabbi's slave, and he would do everything slaves would do. But the one job that was not required of a student of a rabbi was to wash his feet. That was just too low. That was just simply too low. That's what makes Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet like Crazy. It was craziness. It's never been done. And here, the greatest man who ever lived said he was not even worthy to do the job of the lowest slave before the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And that speaks for sure to the humility of John, but do you know what it speaks more to? It speaks more to the worthiness of Jesus. It speaks to the worth and glory and majesty of the king, full of grace and truth. Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the alpha and omega, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our great high priest, the chief shepherd, and maybe the image in scripture that most clearly displays the worthiness of Jesus is the image of the perfect spotless lamb. The perfect spotless lamb. You remember they had this whole system where they acknowledged they were sinners and they needed forgiveness. And what God had provided for them was this system where they would bring spotless animals, lambs or goats, sometimes rams and bulls, and they would place their hands onto that animal and identify, now that spotless animal is receiving my sin. And now that spotless animal will be slaughtered and its blood will be poured out. And the punishment of God for that sin will be placed upon that animal. And year after year, animal after animal was slain. Like this was brutal and bloody for a long time. But we learn that not one sin was ever removed by a, by a spotless lamb or goat. Not one sin. That was all given as a sign of faith, that one day God would provide another sacrifice. One day God would provide a lamb that was so worthy, worthy and pure and spotless enough to take upon itself every sin of every person who would identify, would lay their hands, would trust in him worthy to receive all the sin and worthy to become a perfect propitiation for sin, which means God poured out his justice for sin on that lamb. Only one lamb was worthy, and that's Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is worthy. And John knew, listen, you guys, you want to know about my identity? You need to look to Jesus, the worthy one. This morning, we may have come in with all kinds of questions about our identity. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? May we join John and say, you know what? I'll tell you, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah or the prophet. I am a voice sent to proclaim the good news of a king who came. And do you know what else? I'm a voice that joins in the chorus of voices that says, worthy 
is the lamb who was slain. That's who you are. If you haven't yet come to Jesus this morning, I want to invite you. Listen, it's not some ritual. Put your trust in him. Believe that. I need you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you took my sin, and and I, I believe you are worthy, and you rose again from the dead, and I can be forgiven. Just trust in him. And church, would we together, would we deal with our stuff that we need to deal with, but would we end this morning looking at Jesus together? Would we end this morning beholding the worthy one who's worthy of our worship? Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one like you. You are high and exalted. And Lord, we want to take, would we take the proper posture of humility before you this morning? Would we humble ourselves before you that you would lift us up? Would we remove those high places that protest of our goodness and our worthiness and our righteousness. Lord, would you fill in those low places, those sinful places, those hidden places? Would we clear away that clutter, those rocks that hinder that straight way to communion with you and fellowship with you, Lord? God, I ask that the voice of John would be heard this morning, that we would, those of us who who haven't yet seen, and those of us who don't yet know the King, would we come to know Jesus this morning, the worthy one? And those of us who maybe grown too familiar with you, would we grow deeper into intimacy with you, Jesus? Would we know you more, know your love and your mercy for us? God, would you lead us now in worship, in beholding the King of Kings, the worthy one. You are so worthy, and yet you came to us, and you've made a way for us to see you and behold your glory and even fellowship with you. You offer your own spirit to be poured out in our midst. We want to know you this morning, Jesus.